And a very good evening, everybody, and welcome to our Saturday night spiritual discussion coming to you from the Paul Christian Spiritualist Church. Tonight, we've got a wonderful gentleman uh, with uh, absolutely astounding and, and somewhat intimidating lineage there, Mr. Cargom, the wonderful Philip Cargom. Sir, thank you and welcome to our evening. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely beautiful. Philip, if you could just give us just a little brief bio of your background, please. That would be wonderful. Well, um, when my first sort of spiritual awareness began when I was about 11, that was when everything could have got the lights got switched on, I suppose. I can't remember much before the age of 11. But when I was 11, um, I read a book called The Life of the Buddha. Um, and I was really struck by that, and I decided that that was the only goal worth pursuing, was the goal of enlightenment. And in that same year, I met the old chief druid, who my father uh, worked for. He was an, a friend of my dad, but he ran a college in London, and my dad worked for him as a history teacher in the college as well. Um, and so from that age, I started kind of exploring spirituality, and then uh, when I was 16, 17, I asked to be, uh, I, I became intrigued by my Druid teacher's work and started studying with him and asked if I could be initiated into the Druid order that he was the chief of. And um, he said no. And of course, uh, a 17 year old uh, being told no, and you'd have to wait, you have to wait till you're 18. And I had to wait a whole year. And, you know, um, but when I was 18, I was initiated on Glastonbury tour and um, and that began uh, a long sort of path that I'll try and condense into a couple of minutes for you, which is that um, I was he died in 1975. In 1988, I was asked to reform the order and I led the order for 32 years and then just two years ago, I handed over the role of Chief of the Order to uh, a colleague, Ema Burke, from Ireland, uh, and she is now the Chief of the Order. And um, I'm a psychologist, so alongside my interest in esoteric matters and spiritual matters, I've always been interested in psychology and weaving the two interests together, really. And um, so I now have an online school where I teach various sort of esoteric disciplines with the, the tarot, um, lessons in magic, which is about really working on your your wishes and, and how to make your dreams come true, and um, sophrology, which is a sort of system a bit like mindfulness uh, that comes out of the French-speaking world. And um, so that's, that's, that's what I do in a nutshell. Wonderful. Wonderful. Absolutely. Slight bit of an echo there. Just let me uh, quickly try something here. Hopefully that will cure the echo. That is a great... Do you know, the one thing you said to me, you said a lot of things there which totally intrigued me, totally fascinated me. I've been doing my homework on you. Uh, if I keep looking down, being thoughtful, I'm not. I'm quickly reading up. So, <laughs> but that was quite interesting that you couldn't uh, be ordained until you were 18. Yes, yes, and and I suppose from there's a, there's a theme in here that might be of interest to you because of the spiritualist uh, connection is that when my druid teacher died, um, I studied with him for about seven years and then he died and after he died i had an incredibly powerful dream um that, that about two days after he died um where this sort of he he was standing with a circle of people and i was asked to lie down on an ancient barrow you know these wonderful barrows that we have in a, in the countryside and and he and a group of people stood around and then they sort of poured this energy into me and I actually woke up in this dream. It became a lucid dream and I woke up and I had to actually ask them to stop 
because I thought I was going to um, die or be, you know, overcharged, as it were. There was just too much electricity, as it were, flowing through. And then I didn't, I couldn't get a sense of him for about nine years. And I was disappointed in that because I was really trying to get a, a sense of him on the other side. And uh, in the meanwhile, the little, you know, the, the order that he had started at a, disbanded. There were very few people in it. Um, and um, I, I followed interests in Rosicrucianism, in the Kabbalah, in psychology. And um, but not one day completely out of the blue. I hadn't even, I'd started to forget about him, to tell you the truth, you know, after nine years, got married, had a child, you know, and so on, busy life. And one day I was meditating. And at that time I was working with a type of meditation, which in Zen is called, you know, Zazen, which is just sitting. It's where you, you just go blank. You just sit quietly in a receptive meditative mood without asking for anything, without doing anything, without reciting a mantra or anything. And I was sitting there and suddenly he was in the room with me. And he, he, I didn't see him sort of clever, you know, he didn't appear to my sight, but he was absolutely there and he started to speak to me. And he told me that I should start the order again and that everything would become clear and that the manuscripts and documents would arrive and so that everything would be and that I should lead because he'd he'd created this group and then it had disbanded because he'd um, he died in the way that small groups do sometimes. And then from that moment, it was utterly extraordinary experience. And from that moment onwards, the most incredible series of synchronistic events uh, occurred. As an example, at that time, I used to work uh, in uh, Longacre, Covent Garden. And one of the things he asked me to do was to get all of his books, because being a sort of teenager at the time I knew him in early 20s, I had occasionally he gave me one of his books and I had rather perhaps arrogantly assumed that he would give me all of his books in the end. So I never bought them, uh, you know, and they were privately published and, um, and, and, and uh, not available. And I walked into the shop opposite the office where I worked, and I said, would you by any chance happen to have any books by Ross Nichols privately published during the war? And they, they said, well, that's extremely unlikely. But he went down into the basement, and he came up five minutes later with a little packet tied up with string. And it was one of his books with letters to a friend and drawings. So it was like a letter, physical letter. And that was the day I had this experience with meeting him. I'd had the experience in the morning and this was lunchtime the same day and so on and so on until, until uh, any doubt that I might've had that this was wishful thinking or my imagination was completely you know, dismissed from my mind. I knew it was a genuine contact with somebody on the other side. And I started to have the this, a series of the most beautiful dreams of being with him. And uh, so I, I started putting all of his teachings in the form of a distance learning course. And in the first year, 200 people were taking it. In the second year, 600. And now we have 25,000 people who are members of the order all over the world. The course is published in five languages. Um, uh, you know, we, we have monthly podcasts and 200 groups around the world. It's just extraordinary. But if I had been skeptical on that day um, and thought, oh, no, this is just my imagination running riot, and I hadn't followed his, his requests and promptings, life would have gone in a completely different direction. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, brilliant. Brilliant. Um, uh, sorry, we've sorry. got this annoying echo back again. Two seconds, sir. Let's try that. Um, now you can see what it's like being a guest on StreamYard. Isn't this wonderful? Yeah. <laughs> uh, when we started uh, here at Paul doing these broadcasts and inviting in people from all different walks of life, different uh, understandings and beliefs, 
the one thing that really shone out to me was the commonalities that we all share. It's been a great time to actually, you know, sort of like decloak and take away the mysteries of things. I've said this to you before we went on air, and I, you know, I, you know that I am not being rude or offensive. If somebody said a druid, people probably think, oh yeah, long hair, lives in the Volkswagen camper, uh, and that's about it, you know. However, you, for example, you have this amazing, and as I said, some, sometimes intimidating to me, <laughs> to little old me. Yeah. Uh, you have a degree in psychology. You trained in psychotherapy and play therapy for children, the sophology, which you've touched upon. Also the Montessori, uh, and you're the founder of the Lewis Montessori School. Your author or co-author of over 20 books. This is absolutely amazing. But that experience that you had there with C from our, you know, from the spiritualist side, that really is understandable. We really get that because we hear it. It's in our lineage, it's in our custom and practice, it's in our ancestry as well. Hmm. Uh, and it is quite common very shortly after passing for that person to be there very much and then disappear for quite a while. But that coming back and, like you say, the synchronicity of things, uh, I've experienced that here a great, great deal uh, when we were setting up in COVID and things to do. The right people were just there uh, and it just happened. And, you know, it is absolutely awesome. Big warm welcome to everybody who's joining us. I see the lovely Lynn's in from Canada and Stockholm as well. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Philip, sir, to uh, give a sort of like a, a layman explanation of what is, is druidry? Hmm. Druidry, right. yes. What is druidry? druidry? Yes. If you look at the word, in a nutshell, it expresses what it is. Drew means uh, the etymology, the origin of Drew is the oak tree. And id is the, it, it, its origin stems from the word for wisdom. So if you go oak, oak wisdom, and now the thing is there are two kinds of words. There are connotative words and denotative words, denotative words. Denotative words are the ones that you want your dentist to use, like pass me, drill number five, and so on. A connotative words is the words you want poets to use, where lots of associations come from it. So if you and and and, and so if you use if you see this as connotative, then you can see how oak from oak we get tree, we get forest, the wild, nature, and from 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 wisdom we have depth, understanding, knowledge teachings and so on so so really in that you have this idea of wild wisdom if you like or the wisdom of nature and so what druidry does is it unites a kind of indigenous earth spirituality that reverences the earth and the stars and and all the natural phenomena that, that give us life you know water fire air air you know and so on and um but it also is a tradition of scholarship. So we have about 300 years of um, scholarship within Druidry from a period known as the Druid Revival, which began in the 17th century. So people have been writing about this tradition for about 300 years. And it's really part of the Western mystery tradition. If I had a sort of uh, whiteboard behind me, uh, you know, I could, I could draw sort of a river and, and and I could show you the various streams that inform Druidry. You know, there's been an influence from Freemasonry. There's been an influence from all the kind of cults that existed in Roman times, like the Orphic Mysteries, for instance, that came to these lands at the time of the Roman occupation. And then there was the pre-Roman the pre period, the prehistoric period. Uh, all the influence of those people who built the stone circles in the old days. And um, and these all sort of feed toge together in a stream. 
And then as you get to the present day, you get um, this really interesting weaving together of environmental and ecological concerns if you look if you what you might call spiritual ecological concerns which i think a lot of us have a lot of us realize how important nature is but not just as 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 a, as a series of physical objects a tree a bush a, an, an animal and so on but that there's something behind that physical within that physical object that is essentially spirit and and Drudry speaks to all these uh aspects and i think that's why it appeals to so many people why it appeals to the the chap living in the vw as you said uh but also also i mean one of the things that always struck me we, we have big events at glastonbury a couple of hundred people come to various um events that we put on and you'll have the whole range of people you won't have just one type of person or one one age group there'll be the whole range from young sort of 30 year olds right through to people in their 80s and from all kind of backgrounds and and, and so on ah, awesome awesome thank you <clears throat> that was a wonderful wonderful explanation uh just to give us that idea of where we are and I, I really get it as well you know because uh, again in layman's terms you're thinking about oh they, they just sort of like worship the seasons it is a big part of the Druid calendar, the seasons, but it's the behind that. And I love that when you said, you know, a tree, a bush, it's not. There's so much more behind that. I mean, that's that's right. I mean, when you when you look at the um you know, at the moment, what what's happening um is science is starting to cotton on to this. And you probably, you know, we've all seen, particularly with lockdown, actually, the sort of research they're doing into the value of being in nature, walking, uh, you know, breathing with the, the air of the trees and so on. But what science does is it it tries to isolate the individual, and it, it's a valid pursuit to isolate the elements. So you, a scientist will look at, say, the fact that people feel better when they walk in the forest. And they'll say, what's going on here? And they'll try and isolate the chemicals that the trees are excreting, phenols that come out of the leaves. And there's all sorts of interesting research about that. And then they will say, I mean, there's some fascinating research where they take an extract from tree leaves, the phenols in them, and put them in diffusers in hotels in Japan. And then they've done random control trials where they have some people sleeping where a diffuser is just diffusing mist <clears throat> with nothing in it. And then another group of people are having the diffuser with the tree oil in it. And then they take blood samples and they find that there's a difference in the blood samples, that people's immune systems are being stimulated. So this is this is wonderful research and it's very, very valuable. But one has to be aware of the fact that what they're doing is that they're extracting only one, one element of the beneficial process that's occurring. So obviously what's occurring is you're breathing in these phenols when you're in the forest, but you're also getting the aesthetic satisfaction of the beautiful forms and shapes of the trees. You're getting exercise. And then the Druid would say, <clears throat> these trees are living beings. We wouldn't be on this planet without them. Our destinies are totally uh, woven together. And so these are, these, there are spirits in these trees. And and it's their energy too that we're bathing in, um, so it's a holistic approach, you know. Um, and I see somebody said, "Is Druidry native to the UK?" Well, made. yes. Well, the Druidry is Druidry or Druidism. It's just another word. It's it's what you've written, Sam, but without the e, Druidry. And um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, Druidism, it's the, it means the same thing, um, is, is, a, is the indigenous spirituality of these lands, which includes Ireland's, Ireland, the British Isles, and the western part of France, particularly Brittany, that sort of area. Uh, so it grew up in these lands. And so there's, there's a way in which quite a common feeling people have is when, when people find that conventional religions aren't quite satisfying them even though they might respect them or even be inspired by them but they're not satisfying their sort of needs of the moment uh they find you know nature religions indigenous traditions appealing and they often turn to native american traditions 
or you know the traditions of other places but very often they will find that they 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 it's it's somehow the land that's speaking to them and particularly that if they live in this area or if they have ancestry from this area because we have lots of members in america and australia and so on uh there's, there's something about the geographical location that that speaks as well mm. um yeah fascinating that actually, that actually brings, brings us on very, very nicely, nicely to sue Townsend's uh, uh, oh yeah yes it's, it's a, for people have different well yes this is really interesting and in fact i've i've written a book about this called seek teachings everywhere because one of the things you find if you study different spiritualities and that's one of the you know the the incredible privileges we have in this age that we have access to all these spiritual traditions and teachings uh, at the sort of press of a button, really, um, is you find that at their heart, they're all saying the same thing. And then from the sort of core ideas, these ideas are clothed in different clothes, which suit different cultures, different levels of understanding, and so on. And this is why we need spiritual teachers to keep incarnating and giving teachings, because the way it was expressed, I mean, I don't know if you've had that experience of picking up some something like, I don't know, Madame Blavatsky or Alice Bailey or something like that. It's old fashioned, you know, even yeah. Rudolf Steiner or something like that. And it's 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 clothed. There's these sort of nuggets are clothed in this old fashioned language and so on. So they had these ideas keep having to be re-expressed. And um when, once you realize that it's called the sort of approach is called universalism where you realize the universal teachings within you know uh within all these spiritual traditions you then you then discover that that certain aspects of certain teachings really you really like and they go together so for instance you might find that you like doing yoga uh but that you love christian art you know icons with all the gold in them uh you might like the poems of Rumi, those beautiful spiritual poems of Rumi, who was a Sufi. Um, and then you see, you might stop yourself and think, oh, whoops, hang on a minute, I'm mixing my drinks. I'm, I'm, I'm imbibing from all these different streams. And, 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 and my message there is it's okay. It's okay to mix your drinks because, you know, if you're not comfortable with it, you won't do it. If you just want to follow the path of Christianity or druidism or buddhism then just follow that one path and that's obviously the one that's satisfying you if you find yourself drawn and nourished by various streams that's okay too and so i wrote this book seek teachings everywhere to uh to to to, to suggest this as an idea to start with in my introduction and then to have really a series of essays on Druidry and Christianity, to answer your question, Sue, you know, Druidry and Christianity, uh, how does that work? And it, it works very well. There, we have a lot of Christians who are Druids, for instance. Um, but it also works very well with Buddhism and um, Jainism and Hinduism. <clears throat> it works well with Wicca. Um, and those are the three sort of streams that I cover mainly in the book. But it would work well with, with other paths as well, particularly Taoism, you know. Um, that that it, it goes very well with Taoism. Wonderful. Wonderful. Um, um, there's, there's a lovely, a lovely question, question here, here from, from Anne, Anne Law. Law. Uh, when I was first taken to Wiltshire area as a child, I felt a distinct draw to this area. Is there any apparent reason for this? As it turns out, my ancestors are from there. Well, yes. I mean, I could suggest there are there are perhaps three reasons that first the fact that your ancestors are from there there's it's very interesting you know um stephanie and i uh uh we were both londoners my partner and i we were both uh, born in london grew up in london and then around our mid-30s you know life brought us to the area in sussex where we are now lewis you know brighton area and it only sort of slowly dawned on us that, hang on a minute, um, you know, Stephanie realised that her you know, grandmother had been born in Eastbourne. Uh, my grandparents lived in Hassocks. 
and you realize oh you're coming back to this place where and we were talking about this with our our, our business partner and a colleague in the order dave the bard and uh he had exactly the same experience he ended up in shoreham down the road not knowing that his family history was actually from that area but he wasn't aware of it so i think so there's the the, the call of the ancestors if you like there's a sort of familiarity and a, an at home feeling that somehow comes from the fact that one's ancestral line is perhaps from here there might be the aesthetic reasons as well you know you can argue that you know the reason why you're drawn to wiltshire is it's a very beautiful landscape these wonderful great sweeping uh landscapes and so on um and you could argue the same for, you know, we were drawn to this area of Sussex because of the downs and the sea, the sea you know. Um, but then, so the, and then a third reason uh, is, of course, Wiltshire is a very uh, spiritual place in the terms of the sort of spiritual history of these islands. You have, you know, you, of course, you have Stonehenge, you have Avebury, you have a vast sort of really a, a sacred landscape we, th we can think of Stonehenge and Avebury as individual places on the land, but the reality is it's a whole landscape with West Kennet, Long Barrow, uh, Avebury, Silbury Hill, Stonehenge, Woodhenge. You know, it goes on and on. It's a whole area. And when you look at southern England, uh, it's almost like if you can imagine a starfish slightly sort of skewed, it's legs are going like this. And I've, I've reproduced it in my book, The Druid Way. Uh, there are basically five rows of lines of hills going towards Wiltshire. You've got the South Downs. You've got the North Downs. You've got the, oh, gosh, I forget now. Is it the Marlborough Downs or the Wiltshire Downs? Um, and, and the other thing going down. And there are five of them. And they all, and then in the center, where they all meet, that, that's, that's Salisbury Plain, which is one of the biggest plains in Europe um of, of this particular sort of geographical type so in the old days people would process along these hilltops at sacred times like at lunasa which was the great harvest festival in the beginning of august because that was you know when when food would was at its most plentiful and that's where you had marriages and games and festivals and meetings and all the rest of it before everybody hunkered down for the winter so so Wiltshire drew the center of Wiltshire drew people along these five lines and um and perhaps you're tuning into some of that that this is a very important center for 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 the British Isles brilliant, brilliant. I, I, I fully, fully get, get that, that with, with the, the um, <coughs> sorry, sorry the sound the sound is... Is... you're sounding okay to me Laurie just so you know Oh, right, just my end. I've got quite a big, uh, big echo. Well, well, if I'm hearing it the way everybody else is hearing it, you're, you're sounding absolutely fine with no echo at all. Okay, I'll ignore the echo. Wonderful. Um, yes, very much with the drawn to areas, because this is something I became aware of quite a few years ago. Uh, there were certain parts of Devon and Cornwall where I was at home, hmm. and that is the best way I can describe it. When I got there, I've never been there before, got off the train, I thought, I'm at home. Same with the Lake District. I got off the train, I went, I'm back home again. And geologically, these places have got a lot in common. They run along these same fault lines. And I thought, I find that fascinating. That is interesting, isn't it? Whether you're tuning into that particular geology, whether you had past lives in those two places, for instance, yeah. uh, you know, that could be another explanation. I do know that that uh, uh, there are the there are certain places around the world that feel you feel. I mean, I've had exactly that experience when I first went to Ireland. I felt I felt I was coming home. Uh, when I went to New Zealand, I felt that too. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah. A lot of interest. Welcome everybody. Thank you so much for your input. The lovely Arisha. And talking of Devon and Cornwall, this is where she hails from. As I understand it, everything has its own energy, including human beings and trees. So there must be a connection of spirit. It's lovely when people recognize it. So yes, exactly. Thank you, Arisha. That's wonderful. Jamie Williamson. 
Good evening, sir. Doesn't seem five minutes ago you were here. Oh, it wasn't. <laughs> Philip, are there some trees, forests that are more beneficial to our well-being than others, or do they all have the same effects? Well, I don't know the science around this, because presumably if we were talking to a, a, um, a, a tree scientist who was studying, um, you know, forest breathing for instance and was taking samples they 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 might tell us about certain kind of trees that exude particularly beneficial i, th I think they're called phenols but i may be wrong um I, 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 as opposed to others um so I, I i don't know the answer at a physical level uh what i do know is that Scots, I don't know whether you experience this, but when I'm with Scots pines, I find they're incredibly energizing and uplifting um, and healing. And, you know, whether that's because there's something in the what they're exuding that I'm breathing in is having that effect on me or whether it's their spirit, the, the, the kind of spirit energy that's coming from them, whether aesthetically, of course, they're incredibly beautiful. Um, but I think I think that's where we can all become scientists, spiritual scientists, if you like, and kind of notice it would that would be a very interesting project, wouldn't it? Over over the coming months, as you walk in different woods, to to hold that question, you know, is this wood uh, helping me more than the wood I visited last week, and so on? And um, I would imagine. Just off the top of my head, there's all sorts of you know reasons why one wood might feel better than another. One would be the types of trees. The other would be the the type of soil, because Laurie was 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 mentioning this these geologic the geological default lines and so on. The fact is the geomagnetic energy changes. If if you had a sort of meter, you can measure it, and it just changes depending on the fault lines that are down there, and the kind of rock, whether you're on clay or sand or whatever, and that's going to have a, an effect on you. It's going to feel different. I know generally a sort of clay soil compared to a sandy soil feels heavier. So that, for instance, I remember driving from the forest of Brocéliande, which is this magical forest in uh, Brittany which are mainly sort of oaks and beaches uh, on, on, a, on a sort of kind of heavy soil, clay soil, driving south towards the, the, the inland sea of Loch, uh, of Loch Maricare, uh, uh, of uh, whatever it's called, I've forgotten. And um, there we got to Scots Pines on sand, sandy, and, 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 the, and the different feeling. It felt so much more energizing and healing. So, so, um, so yes, an interesting project. I'll, I'll join you in that, and uh, let's see what we come up with. And very nicely, Jamie is saying he was thinking of pine trees. Yeah, and there you go. Actually, here in Paul, outside our local railway station, they did plant a couple of Scots pine trees, and they, they are they're low hanging at the moment, and most people are walking around them. But I love to walk under them because mm. it just it's, it draws you in. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely beautiful. Uh, Sam Nurse is back. <clears throat> Remaining with geography, have there been particular traditions within Druidry that have evolved in different areas? Yes. Yes, indeed. I mean, I think, I think the, the way, the, the way to understand or one, one uh, perspective to take, which I think can be helpful, is that some students of religion divide religions or spiritualities into two categories type a and type b i can never remember which way round it is but say type a are the revealed religions so these are bodies of teaching revealed to one person usually a man uh which are then encoded in uh writing and uh, are then commented on and developed and argued about and so on so the obvious examples are Christ and uh, and uh, Muhammad uh, and um, to a lesser extent Buddhism, but to some extent. And then type B religions or the other type of religion are, are indigenous religions which grow up over time. 
and there is no one individual that articulates it and it all gets set down in writing that it's usually an oral tradition and so you have if you can imagine the best way to picture this i think is to imagine the ice sheets melting you know the ice sheets went right the way down about two-thirds three-quarters of of britain so you know there were the people were all on mainland europe and then as the ice sheets melted people hunter gatherers moved back up into into britain and ireland and with it they brought with them uh, a, a a kind of um, animistic uh culture that sensed uh the sacred in everything so the moon and the stars and the sky and in the in the fire when it was lit uh you know and they were probably goddess worshipping uh they will have seen everything as possessing spirits so the trees and the animals and so on and then gradually over hundreds of years in fact thousands of years this would gradually kind of develop in in amongst tribes into what finally became known as druidry today uh you know druidism uh in um about uh a thousand bc perhaps something like that 500 bc and it uh so it would have varied according to regions by definition but with certain sort of similar strands as it were in terms of you know reverencing nature and the natural world and so on and then at some point as as as, as tribes started to connect to each other and then um when the you know just before the romans came and then when the romans came to begin with they tolerated druidism uh it started to develop into a much more organized tradition um before the romans got cross with you know bodicea and there's the whole story of what happened with boudicca or bodicea and so, on. Um, so um so yes, that in a nutshell, or, or not, it's not a nutshell, in a rambly sort of way. I hope I've explained a bit of it. Yeah, that was great. That, well, that was absolutely brilliant. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, Christina Thaloris here from Stockholm is asking: Are there any books about druidism you can read to get a better understanding? Christina, you've asked exactly the right man. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it, well, it's it, it's a bit tricky because I, I suppose it sounds a bit. Um, does it well it's only because it, the british are so inculcated to be modest aren't we we're taught that we must never oh god yeah yeah, yeah. you know what i mean so uh, <laughs> if i was modest i i wouldn't say what i'm about to say which is i think if you could read one of my books i've written um there's 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 two books to get an idea really one one is called the um druid mysteries which gives you a really broad overview uh and and in in some depth as well so that's called the druid mysteries and you'll you'll find it on my website and there's the druid way which is a more sort of lyrical if you like uh, a different approach to imparting these ideas where i essentially set foot and, and walk in the landscape to the long man of wilmington and back and and during that time you know a friend dies and then another friend dies and I sort of weave in ideas about life and death and teachings, but all in the form in the form of this sort of journey. So, so people have told me that that's the easiest one to read because you're reading a, a travelogue, if you like. Um, so I would I would say those those might be good starter books. But Penny Billington has written a great book on druidry as well. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of it. I can't. But uh, a Google of Penny Billington would would bring it up. Oh, you're putting the link. I am, uh, Laurie. Yeah, that's very kind of you. Um, Just trying to find Penny Billington. The path of Druidry. That's it. Yes. There we go. Where were we before? Good old Google, eh? Yes. We actually, go out and learn these things. <laughs> uh this absolutely um amazing evening absolutely beautiful 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 sorry i just popped that link in there there you go christina you have a full library there that you can investigate sue townsend <coughs> in view of climate change affecting our environment 
have you any input about what trees would be best to plant in order to preserve our UK woodlands and forests, which would be survive increasing heat and less rain? That, that's a very interesting question. And um, I'm not qualified to answer it. And I should know the answer to that. And in fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to copy that question and, and, and find out. Um, what, but if I can answer, respond to the question in a slightly different way, which is related, though, which is the other day I was, I was doing a bit of work with the trees from a druidic perspective, and, and I was thinking about the elm tree, and I was researching the elm. And, of course, we all know that the elms have all but been wiped out. I mean, you know, they were very common trees in Britain. And over the last, you know, 40 years, they've been absolutely decimated. And I came to, I came to a site in the end of um, when it was the Forestry Commission or the Woodland Trust, where, you know, you realize how complicated these are. There's basically people who call themselves elmies, who are just lovers of the elm. And they're working on trying to create strains of elms that resist the um, bug that kills kills elms, kill elms, and they're trying to reintroduce reintroduce these hybrid elms into the British countryside. And you think my initial reaction was, "This is fantastic! How wonderful!" But then I read the Woodland Trust's response to that, which is that that, that you know because these are hybrids and they're taking DNA from Japanese elms and all the rest of it, that there's some issue. I've forgotten what the issue is now, to tell you the truth, but there's some sort of issue about them not being resilient enough or it being artificial and therefore, uh, you know, and their argument was much more about letting nature take its course. So there's this interesting question around to what degree we we try, because one of, one of the things that I've learned in the last few years is, if say you had two acres of land and you wanted to plant trees on it, depending on where you are and the situation or the the best thing you could probably do is fence it off so that deer and uh, other animals can't get at it and you and you let it regenerate on its own because trees will start to grow there as we as you know in the garden if you don't weed a little patch you find little ash trees scooting up and um you know all sorts of saplings and so on is that the best and so i i was fascinated by this and had a long talk with an arborist friend who's involved in tree planting campaigns and he said yes it's incredible because it's as if nature's wisdom knows the trees that need to be there will be there the ones that can survive and the companion trees that look after each other we always tend to see trees as sort of isolated individuals and and actually you know all this wonderful work that's been done on the mycelium and the connectedness between trees, you realize it's not, it's a, it's a community that's all working together. And if you let them plant themselves, they build up this community of different species and that, that will thrive best on that soil. So perhaps that's relevant in, in, in some way, but I, but I think, you know, really the answer would have to come from a, uh, an arborist, a tree specialist. It, it's uh, it's actually a very interesting raises an awful lot of things uh, to think of there. Do do we interfere, do, mm. or is there going to be a forced evolution appear? Um, and when we start playing with DNA, there's all sort of inherent risk. Because one of the wonderful things that's been coming out of all these talks is the interrelation now with what I would say hard science with spirituality and all things esoteric it's almost like we actually hold the the fifth element and scientists i i strongly believe are more aware of that but they're trying to tie it down to a physical like you were saying with the the extract from the tree without the holistic whole approach mm. So it's mm. not something that's going to sit on a bench somewhere and be examined. It's something that's probably 
it's going to require that trust element, which is something, if you talk to any medium, that's the worst word. Oh, God, we've got to trust all the time. Hmm. But it, it is fascinating, as I say, and I, I do like that term, the fifth element, to come in there. And it is being looked at now. It is asked questions about. It's being studied. Um, <clears throat> we had a wonderful man on last night from Brazil in our spiritist talk. And he said something, and I thought, you know what? I love that. He said, 50-odd years ago, scientists didn't understand the power of the mind and how much that played in our life, our evolution, our actions and everything, because everything was put down to bodily functions and everything else. And not a lot of attention was attributed to the mind. He said, but now, 50 years later, we realize that 99% of our physical ailments and uh, abilities stem from issues in the mind. He said, I wonder how long it will be before we start saying about the spirituality, which at the moment is sort of like, you know, poo-poo, yeah, we leave that to those people. They can play with that before uh, it goes through that regenerative phase of actually becoming into the mainstream and just being accepted. And I think, you know, in, in some ways, it's actually in the mainstream already, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you did a couple of examples, I mean, the Royal College of Psychiatrists have, um, if you're a psychiatrist, you can join a special interest group. And their spirituality special interest group has thousands of members, psychiatrists, who are members <clears throat> of this group. Um, and the more you talk to people, the more and more people, I think, are, are understanding this the importance of the of spirituality actually it is really changing really quite fast i believe yes uh a few years ago i was talking to a psychiatrist from broadmoor hospital in a social situation everybody all right <laughs> not in a professional one do not worry um and just in conversation it came out that i work as a medium as well and he found that fascinating and he's saying about we found like 98% of the causes of different things in people associated with issues within the brain. He said, but we've got this elusive 2%. And I said, and I think, I said, you think they come from an external force? And he went, I do. And hmm. I thought, that, that is really That's promising. That's isn't it? Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Where are we with the question? Anne Law is back. In nurse training, I remember that I think I was Descartes, uh, brought in the separation of mind and body in treatment, and yet clearly MH affects physical health. Are you picking up the gist from that, Philip? Yeah, yeah, yeah yes, sure. De Descartes. Um, Descartes, uh, yes, yeah, sorry. yeah. Uh, and um, yes, and mental, the, 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 the mind-body connection, again, is more and more being explored i think it's really quite exciting and in the field of of well-being and of mental health and physical health understanding the effect of um, of the mind is 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 becoming increasingly uh, studied as far as i can see yes indeed and what we can do to alleviate those uh conditions yeah, is yes. by being in this natural environment, bringing back in nature, bringing in that fifth element into our understanding, and 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 I think as 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 well is is you know one of the extraordinary findings in the placebo effect is that even when people know it's a placebo, in other words, in in experiments where they say to people, look, uh, I know you've got a headache now, uh, but I'm and I'm going to give you a pill. Um, but it's just a sugar pill. So you tell them, you know, it's the, the, there's no medical ingredient in this, but I'd like you to take this pill with water because we're you know, people feel better. So, so, so even when they know that it's, you know, uh, that it's not doesn't have an active ingredient, still it <clears throat> it, it it makes them feel better, which I, you know, which I find extraordinary. Excuse me. 
We're both having a little cough here tonight. Mm. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> With uh, Druidism, mm. the, uh, you just uh, gave me this amazing lineage, restarting a small group up to, is it 25,000 members? Yeah. 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 Is this a continued, sustained growth in there? Are more and more people, especially since we've had the introduction of COVID into our environment, um, has it sparked more interest there? I think, yes. I mean, certainly from from the beginning of the millennium, you know, when we had, you know, that awful disaster of 9-11, mm. um, uh, that began a sort of really quite marked upward trend in the number of people who are asking questions about the, you know, their purpose in the world. Because I think when you, when you see difficult things happening and painful things happening, it makes you question life. What's going on? What, what's, what's happening here? You know, that's the sort of silver lining in these things. I mean, I think the pandemic has been, such an interesting phenomenon because on the one hand it's been awful of course and lots of people have died and suffered and so on and so there's no way that one can be pleased about that at all however what one does has to say have to say is that it's changed a lot of people in positive ways and you know we we all know you know how for a lot of us you know say working from home uh deciding to prioritize what's really important rather than being distracted all the time and slowing down all these things we're familiar with the, one of the little one piece of information that you may not be familiar with is around mental health is that we've heard a lot of publicity about the negative effects of the pandemic on mental health but we haven't heard much publicity about the positive effects now that's because the media like uh upsetting yeah, yeah. people essentially and you know good news is doesn't sell you know sell news so but whilst it's true that the pandemic has created a lot of stress for people at the level of mental health, it's also done the opposite it's also done the opposite because people have found I I do a, a weekly uh, broadcast on YouTube and Facebook called Tea with a Druid on Monday evenings. And it's just very brief. It's 20 minutes, half an hour of just a little chat about a spiritual topic and then and then a meditation. It's like a little sort of oasis of calm in a in a week. And um, I first picked this up when during the pandemic, a couple of people commented in the comment box that they had stopped taking their antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication during the lockdown. And I thought this was fascinating and I started to do more research. I started to ask fellow psychotherapists and they were saying the same thing. They said, yes, I have a number of clients who are no longer taking their medication because all the pressures of that sort of fast paced society that we had created pre-pandemic were dropping away and people and then you had a funny funny effect is as the lockdown as we came out of lockdown that created stress for these people because then they were having to you know go back to work or interact socially with people so it's complex but there are positive elements in uh, that have come out of it for people's mental health as well people have been taking far more uh far, far more ex much more exercise going for walks in the country more uh, with consequent uh, improvements in mental health. And as we've seen, people um, exploring spiritual teachings as well. Definitely. 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 I used I to do work on the railways for many years. And our first seven trains every morning were what I called the bread and butter trains because these were the same people, same train, Monday to Friday, going up to London, returning in the evening and actually losing a whole day in traveling on a train and all that goes with it you know the hustle when you get off the train the hustle to get to the tube the frustration when you have a delay well, we have we never had delays on the trains um, <laughs> <laughs> unheard of um and then suddenly all that has been taken out of their life. And that must have been a really interesting effect on people because we, we do operate very much in our routines. Our mm. routines become our life and without thinking. And then suddenly all that was taken away. 
and we've noticed here within the church and talking to other spiritualist churches a great upsurge now in people attending uh, the churches as they're beginning to reopen because really like, yeah, yeah like you say we've all had a mortality challenge and yeah. two years ago we 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 didn't think about it you know have you Absolutely. made a will out or oh, why would i make a will out you know because you, you're going to die one day <laughs> yeah 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 Seriously. <laughs> Ab absolutely absolutely yeah. yeah sue townsend back and um, could you talk a little about connecting with spirit of place and also spirit of water too i.e the glastonbury chalice well well you know that that's in druidry connecting with spirit of place is, is extremely important what we do is we we recognize that as spiritual beings where you know in essence outside of our everyday understanding of time and space we're sort of infinite uh, eternal beings and then we incarnate into the dimension of space and of time and that's where we live for our incarnation and when we die we're released from those two coordinates and uh, out into this wider freer world and um so, and we celebrate time with our seasonal festivals, you know, so eight times a year we have special ceremonies for the equinoxes and solstices and so on to really celebrate and open to the magic of that particular time. But we also celebrate place as well. And um, so we encourage people in the order, members in the order who are doing the training with us to create sacred places in their homes, inside and outside, uh, and also to get to know their local sacred places. And uh, if if people feel drawn to becoming a guardian of that place, which may be as simple as, you know, on your daily walk, just clearing any litter that, that gathers in that particular area, or perhaps if there's a little local uh, spring somewhere, making sure that it's clean, doesn't get choked with weeds and so on. Um, so doing something actual, actually physical and then simply meditating uh, in that place is a way of not only sort of improving our own well-being and tuning in at a deeper level but there's some sort of mysterious relationship that exists between us and place and uh if we spend time in sacred places and are just quiet and tune in something's going on something is happening that is Strength, strengthening the vibrations of that place and we all know about how certain places feel good if there's been lots of good thoughts good feelings good happenings in a place it'll feel good if there's been some very difficult dark stuff going on in a place it'll feel difficult and dark so simply by giving our good energy as it were or tuning in being present in these sacred places we're somehow contributing to that work Awesome. And, and that's what people have challenged well of course people people do that very consciously and deliberately there and that's why it feels so great i think you know absolutely awesome yes um interesting is you say we've talked about areas where we go where we feel totally at home and it's like this is awesome likewise there are areas uh that you go to there's one area near here and i've always said if you gave me a house there i wouldn't live there hmm. yeah I'd, there's nothing wrong you know it's not next to the sewerage farm or you yeah know, yeah that's right underneath the nuclear dump or anything <laughs> yeah, like that. right. <laughs> it's just not doesn't feel good me. yeah 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 not for me yeah philip sir mm. absolutely amazing evening thank you thank you thank so you. much i appreciate you're an extremely busy man and for sharing this talk time with us is so much appreciated it's a pleasure laurie it's a pleasure laurie and i'm glad to to have uh, spent this time with you yeah and, and and good luck with your with your series and your project thank you thank you as i say i will convert this to a podcast as well to share out there so we're getting the word out everybody's doing our own little thing in our own little ways but it all adds up is my that's belief. right that's right Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Uh, oh, hello, Joan. Got Philadelphia on as well tonight watching you. So uh, how wonderful is this? Next week, we have Bill Rich. So it will be a Lyceum evening. 
And Bill is very much noted for working with guides. So he'll be here to give a short presentation on working with guides and to answer questions because it's always quite a, a sticking point with somebody. I The most commonest thing said is, I don't know my guide. So we can ask questions and gain some tips and advice from the lovely Bill. Philip, on behalf of everybody here tonight and everybody watching in the future and listening in the future, sir, you are awesome. I absolutely you. love you to bits. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank, thank, you. You. thank you. Thank you, sir. <laughs> okay. Good night, everybody.